Please take your copy of God's Word. Let's turn together to 1 Peter chapter 1. First Peter 1, our text begins in verse 13 and actually extends to chapter 2, verse 3. As we're going to see this morning, um, the overarching theme of 1 Peter, at least the way I see it, is, is how then shall we live? Peter's very interested in, in how the Christian life is lived. Um, but, but he started last week with that praise section and praising God, blessed be this God and Savior of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, why? Well, because he's caused us to be born again to a living hope. And so you have this, this opening section of praise and rejoicing in the hope uh, that God has given us in Jesus Christ. But, but Peter doesn't run away from the praise section and then says, oh, let's start getting practical. Rather, he anchors his very practical concerns of on how to live back in hope. Hope is the key, as we'll see this morning. But in order to, to grasp what Peter wants for us, not just in terms of our hopes, but in how it translates into our daily lives, we really do need the help of the Holy Spirit. So let's ask him for his help. Would you pray with me, please? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we do come as your people and we do desire to hear the word of the Lord this morning. And so, Holy Spirit, come, open our eyes of faith, grant us grace to see great riches in this portion of your gospel. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he, he who called you is holy, you also be holy in your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, Conduct yourselves with fear throughout your time, uh, the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a, a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. 
like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So why does Peter bring up hope again? I mean, he does it right here in verse 13. We've already heard in the praise section that we've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But here in verse 13, he says, set your hope fully on the grace that we brought to you in the revelation of Jesus Christ. Why does he do that? Why is hope so important to what Peter wants us to be and do as followers of Jesus Christ? Well, over many years now, I've, I've learned a little bit about why hope is so important from Brian Stevenson. Um, you might recognize that name. He wrote the book, Just Mercy. He's the founder and executive director of the Equal Justice Initiative in Montgomery, Alabama. Um, over and again, Brian has talked about uh, the importance of hope for his work with uh, death row inmates, trying to offer them sufficient legal counsel, perhaps legal counsel that they didn't receive at any point of the process in our, our legal system. And, and he confesses that sometimes he, he struggles with hope, but he, he's always working to, to stir that hope back up because hopelessness, he says, um, is the enemy of justice. And so, so if hopelessness is the enemy of justice, it's important for us to, to hang on to hope. Hope leads to action, leads to change. In one speech that he gave this past year, um, Stevenson told the story of his great-grandfather, um, who was an enslaved man uh, in Virginia in the 1850s, And in the face of harsh anti-literacy law, where it was illegal for slaves to be taught to read or to learn how to read, Stevenson's great-grandfather taught himself how to read. And then after saying that, he observed, I don't think I would be standing here if my great-grandfather hadn't created that reality for us. You can make decisions that are hopeful, about what you're going to do, where you're going to, how you're going to serve, what are you going to make a difference around. Your hope is key. Now, as he so often does, Stevenson is is simply translating the Bible for a secular audience because what he was saying is, is, is essentially the same thing that, that Peter is saying right here. Your hope is key. Set your hopes upon upon the coming of Jesus, upon the resurrection of the dead, new bodies in a new world, new heavens, new earth. Anchor your hopes in Jesus in the face of all kinds of suffering, in the face of affliction and abuse, in, in the face of suffering and sadness, but don't miss it. When you, when you anchor your hopes in Jesus, hope doesn't just sit around. Hope hope isn't just doing nothing. Hope isn't passive. No, because we hope for future glory, because we have a hope that's alive and real, that hope serves 
as the basis of life in this world, as, as Brian Stevenson said. Hope affects what you're going to do, where you're going to, how you're going to serve, uh, what you're going to make a difference around. In other words, it changes the way we relate to God and the way we relate to one another. That's what hope does. Hope's the motivation that leads to holiness and to love. Notice first the way that Peter tells us that hope leads to holiness. First look at the beginning of the section, verse 13. He says, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So clearly, we're to set our hopes on, on Jesus' return and, and the grace that will come to us, particularly the resurrection from the dead, new bodies, new life, and new world. But, but there's, some, there's some characterizations here of us as we set our hopes on Christ. What, what characterizes us? So there's these two phrases, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. That first phrase, preparing your minds for action, it's actually a fascinating set of Greek words here. It, it actually pictures a runner in ancient times who, who had a robe on, kind of like my robe, and he wanted to run. And so in order to, to run, he would gather his robe up and he would put it in his belt so that he could free his legs. He, he could run. The old King James that some of us grew up with actually gets the word picture here. It, it renders it, gird up the loins of your mind. In other words, get ready to run. Get, ready, get, your, get your mind, get your heart ready to run, ready to go. But then be sober-minded. In other words, don't be fuzzy thinking like you sometimes might feel after uh, two or three drinks and, and you have a little buzz and suddenly you're not as quite as sharp as, as you were when you were, when you were sober. Uh, Peter says here, no, don't be fuzzy thinking. Rather be sober-minded, be, be clear thinking with, with clear heads and clear eyes. Set your hopes on Christ. So these two characteristics together you would have as you get ready to run. And as you focus with a clear mind, a clear head, set your hopes on Christ. And what will that produce? It, it will produce holiness. It calls us to holiness. That's how he goes on, isn't it? Verse 13, preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Verse 14, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who calls you is holy, you also be holy in your conduct. Since it is written, you shall, you shall be holy for I am holy. So setting our hopes on Christ so that we are ready to run, focused, focusing our hopes on him actually leads us to something. It, it calls us to something. Hope calls us to live differently now. Our conduct ought to look different because we've set our hopes on Christ, his coming, and his, and his resurrection grace to us. Peter talks about this in two ways. First, first, he tells us what not to do. 
Verse 14, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. I think, I think we understand what he might be saying here because we do understand what passions are or what desires are, what they feel like. For some, the very feeling of desire is what it means to be human. You might remember the author Charles Frazier. He had a, a huge hit with his debut novel, Cold Mountain. The follow-up, the second novel, didn't do nearly as well. It was called 13 Moons. But early in the novel, uh, the narrator voice in, in, the, in the book lays out not just what the book is about, but really, I think, something of Frazier's worldview. He said the, the gist of the story is that even when all else is lost and gone forever, there is yearning. One of the few welcome lessons age teaches us is that only desire trumps time. And there is a sense in which that's right. As, as human beings, we are desiring beings. We, we have a longing, and ultimately that longing is meant to lead us to God. But we know, too, that not all of our yearnings and longings and desires and passions are good. In fact, that's what Peter's telling us here. Apart from Christ, as we, we live in, in this world system, the world system teaches us uh, all kind, and offers us all kinds of things to satisfy our desires and leads us into baser desires and, and to wrongful conduct, things that are contrary to God's way. And Peter's telling us that if we've put our hopes in Christ, if we've set our hopes on him, then that hope calls us to say no, to say no to our wayward desires, to say no to our passions which were formed in ignorance, but also to say yes to something, to say yes to being holy in all our conduct. So the negative, verse 14, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. The positive, verse 15, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for as I am holy. That word holy, we, we use that word, that's a Bible word. But what does it mean? Well, the word holy has the idea of being separated for a purpose, for God's purpose, for being dedicated, set aside for, 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 for a dedicated use or, or purity, um, something that would, be maintain, that would seek to maintain purity for, for God's use. So separated, dedicated, for, for God's use, purity, those are the ideas that are typically associated with holy, so that, so that places could be holy. Like in the Old Testament, the tabernacle was holy. It was a dedicated place set apart for God's use, God's presence in the, the pillar fire by day, the, uh, the pillar fire by night, the, the pillar cloud by day would rest over the tabernacle. Ground could be holy. Remember when Moses saw the burning bush in Exodus 3? And the Lord says, take off your sandals for the ground you're standing on is holy ground. Because God was there, the ground itself was set apart for God's particular use. So places could be holy, things could be holy. The pots and pans that were used in the tabernacle and the temple service. The, the candlestick that would be in the holy place. Um, 
the Ark of the Covenant, uh, which was man-made and yet sat in the Holy of Holies. All these things were holy. They were separated or dedicated for God's purpose, for God's use. And so they were to be kept pure, kept clean. So places, things, people were holy. Uh, The most obvious was the high priest, Aaron, who through an ordination process was consecrated or set apart so that he would be holy. He would be dedicated or separated for God's purposes. So when Peter's telling you and me that our hope in Christ leads to holiness, that this is what we're called to, what he's saying is you have been set apart. You've been dedicated for God's purposes. So live that way. Live as you are. Live as one who's been dedicated to the Lord, who's been, who's been set apart, who's been separated, so that your life actually looks different. Your conduct actually looks different because you're holy. Now, there are two reasons why um, we should recognize that, that this is actually what we've been called to. And the first is that we're, we're actually God's children. There's this little phrase in verse 14, you may have zipped past it, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. And then verse 17, and if you call on him as father. So, so God is our father. We are his children. That's, that's true. We, we are children of a heavenly father, sons and daughters of the great king. And, and so what, what do children do? Well, they want to do what their fathers do. At least they ought to. Uh, like father, like, like son. There, there was a beautiful picture of that very reality. Like father, like son. Um, you may not have seen it or remembered it from the 2016 Olympics. Matthew Sentrowitz um, ran the 1500 meter, the metric mile uh, for the United States, and he won. It was the first gold medal for the United States in the metric mile since 1908. It was a tremendous achievement. It really should have gotten more uh, national publicity than it did. Um, It was Centrowitz's second Olympics, uh, which in itself is an amazing feat, but, but not in his family because his own father had actually competed in two Olympics. And Matthew the son loved his father so much and was so proud of their mutual accomplishment of running in two Olympics that, that after the race was over and he had won the gold medal and he was standing next to his dad doing the interview on NBC, he took off his singlet to reveal that he had tattooed, he had a tattoo across his chest. His dad wasn't aware of it. Like father, like son. Now that was incredibly moving. I don't recommend that. <laughs> Drew Ben, you don't need to do that. And yet I, it was incredibly moving that, that this son was so proud of his father that, and the, their shared accomplishment, and then winning the gold medal, that, that he would express it in just that way because that's what sons do. That's what children do. Children bear the characteristics of their father, of their mother. Now, 
Listen, that's what Peter's telling us here. God our Father is holy. He is separated. He is pure. We are his children. And because we're his children, because we're his sons and daughters, we are like him. He's holy. So are we. That's what Peter says. As he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Not, not we should be holy so that we might become children. No, it's because we are his children, we are to be like our holy father. But how did we become children? Which That leads to Peter's second reason why we should pursue holiness. It's, it's because of the cost. The cost that was paid for us to become children. Verse 17, And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. How did we become children? Well, it wasn't through our own efforts. It wasn't because we were smarter than everyone else and, or more aggressive than everyone else or cleverer than everyone else. Not because we were wealthy. We didn't, we didn't become God's children by giving a certain amount of money. No, what Peter tells us is that, is that we became children of God, not because of what we did, but because of what Christ did. Not because of our silver and gold, but because of the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. We were redeemed. We were, we were bought back from our sins by the blood of Christ. We were brought back, brought back from our disordered and wayward desires by our ignorant passions. How? By the precious blood of Christ. Now, we, in this place, we talk about the blood of Christ, about the cross of Jesus Christ, lots. It's, it's a very rare, rare sermon you will hear me preach where we don't somehow find our way to, to Christ and his cross. Um, be, part of that's because I've been determined not to know anything among you but Christ and him crucified. But... But even when we hear it a lot, think about it. Think about what Peter's saying here. That, that you are in slavery. Slavery to your passions. Slavery to your desires. Slavery to your sin. And Christ died. He shed his precious blood so that you might be brought back and made God's child. What does that mean? It means your lust put Jesus to death. It means your lying, the shading of truth, the, the manipulation, it put Jesus to death. It means that, it, that your anger, your bitterness, your contempt, Put Jesus to death. It, your slander your, and your gossip, your, your backbiting and your malice, all, all put Jesus to death. Your endless, relentless discontent, put Jesus to death. You see, if we were going to be redeemed, if we were going to be set free, if we were going to be made 
God's children, we, we, couldn't, we couldn't buy our way forward. Jesus had to die. As Peter's going to say in chapter 2, it's by his stripes we are healed. That's how we've been brought back to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. And so we have to say, who was the guilty that brought this upon thee? Alas, my treason, Jesus, hath undone thee. Twas I, Lord Jesus, I it was denied thee. I crucified thee. That was the price that was paid. Our sins, your sins, my sins, put Jesus to death. His blood was shed so that we might be his. And so because that cost was paid to make us God's children, and because God raised him from the dead and gave him glory, and because God makes us children and believers through him, shouldn't we set our hopes in him? Shouldn't we set our hopes in Jesus that this Jesus who died for us, who's made us God's children, shouldn't we rest our hopes in him to follow him? And shouldn't this hope then lead to holiness, to a different kind of living, different kind of conduct, refusing to allow our wayward desires to, to dominate us, but rather to, to conform ourselves to what scripture shows us is the, the way that disciples should live. But, but there's a second thing to which hope leads. Hope leads to holiness, which changes our relationship with God, but, but hope leads to love, which is our relationship with others. Peter says in verse 22, look at this, this is interesting. He's, he says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, so get that, He's just talked about hope that leads to holiness. You've purified your souls. This is holiness by your obedience to the truth. Where does that go? What does it produce? For a sincere brotherly love. And in light of that, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. So hope that leads to holiness in turn produces love. Sincere brotherly love. We're to love one another as, as family, out of a pure heart. We don't love one another as objects. Right? That's what the world does. The world objectifies each other. We run cost-benefit analyses about whether it's worth loving or what I can get out of loving. We don't love one another as projects. The world does that too. We don't love one another as possessions or obsessions as the world does. No, we love one another as brothers and sisters because that's what God has made us. We are his children and together we are family. We are new people. We're new people. That's what Peter says here. He says, um, verse 23, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Verse 23, since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. It's the second time Peter's told us we're, we've been born again, that we are new people. Remember back in chapter one, verse three, he's caused you to be born again to a living hope. So here, now, the reason why we are able to live, love one another uh, is because we've been made new people. We're born again. 
But what was the means? How did we become new people? Well, Peter tells us it's the living and abiding word of God. The good news that was preached to you. In other words, the gospel is the means. How do we become new people? Through the, through the gospel, and especially God uses the preaching of the gospel, the preaching of his word as the effectual means of our salvation, not just the beginning of our salvation, but, but, but the continuance, the preservation of it all the way so that we might get to heaven safely. God uses this particular means, as Peter says at the end of that chapter, and this word is the good news that was preached to you. Which means then, if we, if we desire to increase our love for one another, we need to, to be under a regular diet of, of the preaching of God's word. I mean, to be sure, we should be reading the Bibles for our, our Bibles for ourselves day by day. That's vitally important to, to have a grasp of the scriptures, to allow God to speak to you as you read the word day by day. But it's not to be compared to the, the explanation of and the application of the preaching of God's word and the, and the corporate worship of God's people. This is the means, the pure spiritual milk that God offers us because this is what stirs our hope. This is what leads us to holiness. This is what increases us in grace and strengthens our love. In the same way that we wouldn't want to miss a meal, or especially for a baby, we wouldn't want them to miss a feeding or two or three or four. Four missed feedings would be disastrous. So it is for us. We should long to hear the preached word, to be reminded of the good news of the gospel, because this is how we, we become new people and how we are sustained as new people who live differently with new practices. So it's the result of hearing the preached word that in chapter 2, verse 1, we, we are taught to put away all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up unto salvation. All malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, all slander, we put all that away. In his place, we put virtues, good conduct, right? In, in place of malice, we put on kindness. In place of de deceit and hypocrisy, we put on honesty and transparency. In place of envy, we, we put on generosity and, and contentment. In place of slander, we put on gracious courtesy. That's what it looks like to love one another sincerely from a pure heart. So I ask you this morning, do you want to be more holy? Do you want to love better? If so, what, do you, what should you do? Stir up your hope. That's what Peter's telling us. Stir up your hopes. Set your hopes on Christ, on his coming again, on the resurrection of the dead, on future glory, on new life in a new world, new heavens, new earth. Set your hopes on not just Christ's grace that he will bring in the last day, but, but on Christ himself on his beauty and his excellency, on his death on the cross for you. Meditate deeply and richly upon the meaning of his own resurrection. What's your hope in death? Christ, he lives. 
Christ he lives. That's the way to holiness and love. I mentioned last week, I recently read an abridged version of a classic English Puritan work by a man named Richard Baxter called The Saints Everlasting Rest. Um, Throughout the book, Baxter encourages us to meditate on heaven, to meditate on Christ's return, on future glory. Um, And he argues that such a meditation on the saints' everlasting rest actually will help you sustain life in this hard world, in the midst of suffering and difficulty and tribulation. Baxter is going through the English Civil War, sees parishioners who've died. He was a chaplain for a time, saw countless men um, murdered and slaughtered as a result of the war. His own health was indifferent, um, struggled with all kinds of maladies throughout his adult life. And yet, he, he learned my experience that the way to sustain life in the midst of this difficult world was to, to stir his heart to meditate on glory and to stir his hopes. Why? He says, hope encourages the soul in sufferings. Hope encourages the, encourages the soul to venture on and the greatest difficulties. Hope enlivens the soul and its duties. Hope is the spring that sets all the wheels in motion. Would the farmer plow and sow if he didn't hope for the harvest? Would the soldier fight if he did not hope for victory? Or we might say from with Brian Stevenson, would an enslaved man teach himself how to read if he didn't hope for a better future? You see, your hope is the key. So if you desire to be holy, if you desire to love from a sincere heart, stir up your hopes. Set your hope on Christ. Anchor your feet there, ten toes down, and find Christ to be all in all for you. Let's pray together. Father, Son, Spirit, we do pray that you would come and do your work. That you would, in fact, stir our hearts and our hopes so that, Christ, you would be all in all to us. Lord, we do desire to look more like our Father. And we do desire to love one another well. And so, Lord, grant us grace today. By word and spirit, accomplish all that we need for your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name.